Um, let me pray. So, Holy Spirit, Lord, we thank you that your anointing has rested upon Anna um, for the last six years as she's ministered within our church family. And Lord, we've benefited, we've received Anna as a gift, um, a gift from heaven, and we've benefited so much from her ministry, her leadership, her example. And Lord, we know that your anointing is going to grow and intensify as she becomes the senior pastor of a church in North Cornwall. And Lord, we ask now that your spirit would come and anoint her to communicate something of your heart as well as her heart for us as a church family, that we might step into the fullness of what you've ordained for us. Holy Spirit, come. Amen. Oh, so I'm going to do it for the last time. Probably not the last time because I've got another two services. But if you've never met me, my name is Anna. I'm part of the staff team here at KXC. It's great to meet you. Um, so um, for those who are visiting in the room or joining us online, and um, I want to say a little bit of a sorry because usually when I write a talk... I try and make it as accessible as possible for people who aren't of faith, um, who are of faith, who are just visiting KXC or part of KXC. But today, um, I want to very specifically talk to the people of KXC. So if any point you feel like you're looking in on something, I want to say a little bit of a sorry. I hope you find it helpful. But also ask someone um, if you've got any questions about faith, etc. Ask someone who maybe invited you to come with you today. Um, but I do want to just say a little bit of a sorry at the beginning. Today we are looking at the book of Philippians, going to go to chapter 2. Uh, Philippians is a book that's written by a guy called Paul who was a church leader um, in the early church. He wrote much of the New Testament and he writes this book um, from prison when he's in Rome in prison. Which is why when you read chapter 1, Paul is contemplating death. Because the death penalty is a very real prospect for him. He's actually kind of sitting there in his cell and he's wrestling with the idea that this might not go the way I necessarily wanted to go. I might end up facing the death penalty. I might be freed. And he says this amazing statement. He says, to live is Christ and to die is gain. And this isn't some flippant um, pronouncement at the kind of crescendo of a worship song. And this is a moment where he's looking at a prison wall in chains. It's an extraordinary statement. For Paul, to live is to give his whole being, his whole life to serving King Jesus the Messiah. And to, and to die for him would be a game because he would get to be with him. This isn't like some hypothetical thing in a pub, gun against your head, would you renounce your faith? <laughs> Paul is literally kind of torn. What's the outcome of my sentence going to be? Life or death? Both mean Jesus. But for him, it's so interesting that for him, life would mean continuing to serve the Jesus communities that he started and start new and existing ones. So for Paul, the sacrifice is not dying. The sacrifice is living to serve others, in, to suffer for others that they might experience the love of Jesus. And while we can marvel at the courage of Paul and wonder like, wow, he's so brave. How do we become more like Paul? Maybe we should do some sort of like psychometric test and see which one of the Bible characters we're most like. And maybe it'd be Paul. Interestingly, Paul, according to Google, is an ENTJ on the Myers-Briggs. <laughs> if you're wondering if that is your type, then congratulations. You're one step closer. But to, to marvel at Paul would actually be to miss the entire point of Paul's life because Paul, his life is not Paul-shaped, it's Jesus-shaped. Who, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used for his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking on the very nature of a servant, becoming made in human likeness. 
And being found in the appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. And therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. A few years ago, um, I was in an Uber with some of the team. I think we were on the way to a Christmas party, I think. Um, but somehow we got in this, to this conversation with the Uber driver about Jesus. And the, the guy didn't have a faith, but he was fascinated by different spiritualities. And he'd done a lot of looking into um, different faiths and different religions. And he'd looked into Jesus. And he made this fascinating comment. He said, I have to say, out of all the religions, Christianity is the cleverest to which I was like, well, what, what makes you say that? And he said, well, become, God becoming man is a very clever thing, isn't it? Because when God becomes man, you actually know what God is like. And I was like, yes, that's incredibly profound and deep and simple and yet profound. Who is God? It's not a mystery to who, who, who God is. It's not a question. It's God has revealed himself. He has made himself known. We can say very concrete things about the character, about the nature of God, because we look into the face of Jesus. And Athanasius, a fourth century Egyptian scholar and church leader, was the first per person to write a book um, about the incarnation, God becoming man. And he says this in his introduction. He says, let us follow up the faith of our religion and set forth also what relates to the word becoming man and his divine appearing amongst us, that Jews traduce and, and Greeks laugh to scorn, but we worship. What trips up the Jewish kind of the, and the Greek reaction is not so much that God is revealed, it's the nature of the revelation itself. After all, Jews were looking for a Messiah. They were looking for someone who would have divine characteristics who would lead them into glory. And yet they saw Jesus and they rejected him. The Greeks were incredibly comfortable with the idea of the divine becoming human because many of their gods kind of had a human form. They saw Caesar as a human form of God. And yet when they looked at him, they scorned to laugh. The issue was not the nature of the revelation. It was what was revealed about God that they found so disturbing that God would become a servant that God would make himself nothing, that Jesus became the laughingstock in the ancient world, a laughingstock because the route to honor was very clear, particularly for the Philippians. They, they had this thing called the, the cursus honorum, the kind of the course of honor, the steps you would take to get yourself up to the ladder of power, the route to glory, the route to honor. This was an honor-shame culture. Honor was the most important commodity that you could have in those days. It wasn't about money because you could have money, but you could be, use it dishonorably. And honor was, um, and shame were ascribed to you. It wasn't something you had internally within you. It was something people gave to you. It was through public acknowledgement. It was through kind of family honor, deeds, interactions, public achievement, heroic exploits. And the readers of Philippi, they lived in this, um, Philippi was an outpost of Rome. It was incredibly patriotic. A lot of veterans ended up there. So people who were known for honor because of their heroic exploits, they were sent there as a reward. So these guys would have known the steps to honor. And yet Paul's description of Jesus doesn't take the upward trajectory towards honor. It is a descending life who being very nature God did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage, rather he made himself nothing, 
by taking on the very nature of a servant being made in human likeness and being found in the appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. The cross is the lowest point. It's the most shameful way to die. It's the complete antithesis of honor. Shame was heaped on you in death. And Cicero argued that the uh, Roman citizen shouldn't even hear the word the cross. The mere name of the cross should be far removed, not only from the persons of, of Roman citizens, from their thoughts and their eyes and their ears, for not only the actual fact and endurance of these things, but the bare possibility of being exposed to them, the expectation, the mere mention of them even, is unworthy of a Roman citizen and a free man. Long before the cross was a piece of jewelry in a fashion statement, it was a swear word. Death on a beep. And God says that's what God is like. He's obedient to death, even, even death on a cross. It's a clever idea, God becoming man, as our Uber driver said, sure. But what is God like when we see him, when he's revealed? What happens if we don't like it? And that was the case with Jesus in the ancient world, repulsed by a God who would choose the cross. And still today, Jesus, the servant king, is not convenient for us. It's much easier to dumb him down. And Kexi, what I want to say is to you is don't make God in your own image. Don't edit Jesus to become more palatable. Confront him when he asks you to do quite big things, in fairness. But please never remold him into an image that works for you. Either he's God or he's not. And if he is, he's the one who gets to tell you who you are, not the other way around. God has been revealed. He is known. He is Jesus, and he's the one who pours himself out as a servant. And in this poem, that is the turning point. You hit the cross. You hit the lowest point of shame, what everyone else mocks and scorn, and yet we see the Father honors it. Therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And in these two verses, Paul is speaking to the Jewish and the Roman readers, affirming the divinity of Jesus. Firstly, the Jews, he says, every knee should bow and every tongue confess. And he's directly quoting Isaiah 45, where it says of God, for I am God and there is no other. To me, every knee bows, every tongue shall swear allegiance. They're saying, he's saying, this is the one, this is Yahweh God. He is the divine one to whom you bow the knee and you confess your allegiance. And he does exactly the same thing for the Romans. He takes, he says, Jesus is Lord. And in Philippi, as I said, it was a patriotic Roman outpost where Caesar is Lord, where Caesar is the divine statement. So Paul takes this mantra of the empire, Caesar is Lord, and he rewrites, rewrites it. And he says, there is a divine savior, and his name is Jesus, and Jesus Christ is Lord to the exclusion of all else. And the summary would be, and this is something I've learned at KXC, mainly through repetition again and again and again and again and again. And the summary would be this, that the shape of the story looks like this. <laughs> Thank you. 
So why the history lesson and the sermon that preaches, Pete has preached 10,000 billion times? Why repeat it again? And the reason would be that you may know this, you may hear this, you may be able to repeat it and, and do Pete's sermons because you've heard so, so many times, but it takes a lifetime to practice and to learn to live it. And it requires saying the message again and again and again that we do not veer off from any other God or define him in any other way than the servant king, the Messiah, the one who died and rose again. That is what God is like. Jesus is Lord and there is no other. And the difference between London and Philippi is that Caesar is Lord is not particularly the mantra that we would hear about in our empire. The divine savior is not some authority figure the saviour is the self. I save myself and my family. And if there's one thing we need to ruthlessly eliminate, it's the idol of myself, me and I. And if you listen to our cultural phrases, be true to yourself, you do you, selfies, your authentic self, your truth, what works for you, the heart wants what the heart wants. We, def like, we define our stories, our worlds, our destinies, and what we need is in here. And the waters we swim in are not Caesar is Lord. But the downward movement of Jesus is just as radical now as it has ever been. And as the followers of Jesus, love is defined by Jesus. And God has defined love as emptying yourself, as pouring yourself out. That is love. And to empty yourself is a terrifying prospect. The resistance that we feel in us is very real to take on this way of life, to pour ourselves out. And Paul knows the weapon that he's going to get in order to get them to change is not going to be persuasion. He's not going to kind of tell them through his really clever argument, this is how you should change. No one here is going to be persuaded into living that kind of sacrificial life because I've really persuaded you. Paul realizes they don't need persuasion, they need demonstration. You cannot tell yourself or anyone else through persuasion, you must empty yourself and let go of the idol of self. Because underneath that fear, underneath that obsession with self is fear. It's a deep anxiety, a hypervigilance, a sadness, a rage, a worthlessness that I'm not okay, that I need to protect myself. It's a powerful narrative that we live by. And therefore, to empty yourself, well, that represents loss, not gain. To empty yourself is basically to say, I'm embracing the fear of abandonment, not connection. And when I arrived at KXE, I was terrified of vulnerability. Still am. <laughs> <laughs> Emotional surrender, um, to me, it meant loss, not gain. I was incapable of saying sorry, because I thought it would make me look weak. And the guards were so high, B will tell you, and B and I used to have like conversations where she'd kind of poke at me. I'd just get a pillow and just cover my heart from the emotional questions. And the truth is, before I moved to London, I'd gone through a period of basically becoming incredibly arrogant. It wasn't obvious, obvious to others because I'd become quite well at playing the Christian game. But I kind of began to believe the adulation and praise that was given to me. And I slept, walked into this self-obsession through my actions and my achievements. And I became the recipient of what I thought was honor. It was all about ascending, ascending into more power. And then I spent one year at a large church um, where basically I wasn't that special. And it broke me. And I realized that this external image just collapsed. It didn't really much take much for the house to fall down. I built my house on sand. 
My identity had been formed by something fragile, and one puff made it collapse. I think I just combined um, a parable <laughs> with the three little pigs, <laughs> I think might be blasphemy. Um, anyway, <laughs> the last three years have been about um, rebuilding on a different foundation. And I didn't need persuasion, I needed demonstration. And that was primarily demonstrated to me by Jesus. I've experienced in this community some kind of reawaking obsession with him. You can probably track it in my talks. I swear at the beginning I was just using pop psychology most of the time and not really mentioning the incarnation, the cross and the resurrection. But the model of Jesus is the, way, the, the primary root of demonstration that we have. The Father doesn't try to win us over through a life of kind of persuasive lectures, but a demonstration God has taken the first step. God has made the first movement towards us. He made the first sacrifice. Jesus is the father in the story of the prodigal son taking initiative. And he shows us that in his death. But then he also shows us what comes after death. Life and life in his fullness. And he really does bring it. It's not, it's not a lie. He really does bring it. The cross is not the end of the story. The story doesn't end in sacrifice. It ends in glorious resurrection, bringing us into a life that is more expansive than we could possibly imagine. There is true freedom, true freedom, and there is true honor when you take the plunge into a life of descent. But there's another demonstration and in Philippians, Paul upholds and names people who have for him to been like Jesus. This is going to be tough. <clears throat> Paul names people who have poured themselves out in sacrifice and service, and then he goes and honors them. British. <laughs> I want to thank you, KXE, because over the last six years, you have modeled this to me. You have demonstrated by being his church, by being his body, you've embodied self-giving, servant-heartedness, and humility. And that's what I see when I look at this church. I've seen it in the leaders them. <laughs> I won't look at them. <clears throat> They'd be the first to say they're not perfect. <clears throat> but I have witnessed time and time again how they don't grab at power, but have made themselves servants, who have given away in generosity at a cost to themselves, who have humbled themselves, been obedient, and taken up their cross. I've seen individuals in this church not grasp at power, but serve who have not been preoccupied with themselves and their own well-being, but they have given themselves away. When you see it in people, don't be afraid of honoring it because it is a rare thing. There's no greater compliment that we can give people than to say, you look like Jesus. Look hard for it, and when you see it, honor it. And I've seen it in you, Kexi, and it is beautiful and it is glorious. And I know church can be incredibly painful at times. It can be offensive. 
Sometimes people say things that offend us. Sometimes that has more to do with us than them, but there we go. It's imperfect because we are imperfect. The church is not meant to be the saviour. No one in it is meant to be the saviour. But it is how our saviour wants to demonstrate his self-giving love to the world. So please do not give up on church. Do not give up on the body of Christ. It seems like quite a fashionable thing at the moment. But honour her when she is gloriously like Jesus. Don't harm her by sitting on the edges and constantly griping from the sidelines. Because the church, KXC, is not just something over there. It is us. It is you. It is me. And when we tear the church down, we tear ourselves down. And we really need each other because this self-emptying life is hard. It takes courage to embrace a life of sacrifice, to follow the way of Jesus and take up your cross. And he took the full first step for us. And what he does is he asks us to take the first step for others, for people who haven't experienced that kind of love. And we saw it so beautifully in that video of the brunch. Like That is what love looks like. That is what sacrificial love looks like. And Jesus gives us the honor of demonstrating it to the people of King's Cross and beyond. So that's my encouragement. If I could have a little warning. (laughs) Sounds heavy. It's not that heavy. And the warning would be this. Don't get complacent. It's not given by simply coming to church and going through the motions that you suddenly become more and more like Jesus and embracing this life of sacrifice and service. I've watched many Christians come and go from church and not change and not grow into his image. For some people, it gets too tough and too costly, so they walk away. Some want to have their cake and eat it, want to worship Jesus and just not change anything else in their life, keep their obsession with money, success, and power. But life will be choked out. And some sleepwalk, like I was, away from him. There's no guarantee that you or I will be the ones who hear Jesus and imitate it. It takes a daily choice. A daily choice to take up your cross and say, I make him, the one who came to serve and sacrifice for me, I make him my sole obsession and I make him my reason for living. Paul isn't trying to impress people when he says to live as Christ and to die as gain. He's just explaining his life. He's just saying this is why I live my life this way. Paul made this God who revealed himself as a servant the sole purpose of his life. And KXC... Let the thing you're unknown for be your radical devotion to this king, to this servant king, this Messiah, who is Lord of all. Jesus Christ is Lord. Let him infuse your life, your mind, your body, your very being, your choices, your sights, your objectives, your aims. This God who made himself nothing for you. Let him form the way you do relationships. Let him form the way you do your communal life. Let King's Cross see Jesus because you are willing to sacrifice and demonstrate the way to honor is not through self-obsession but through self-giving love. Because he who being in very nature God did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather he made himself nothing. By taking on the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in the appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death 
on a cross. Therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. Jesus Christ is Lord. Jesus Christ is Lord. Jesus Christ is God. He is the fullness of God, and when we look at him, we see the face of God, and we see the shape in which we are called to live. Jesus Christ is Lord.